Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. My name is Kelly and I am the Deputy Head of Research for Asia. The following episode is adapted from our recent interactive webinar session on tourism after COVID-19. We realized that the COVID-19 pandemic has been a watershed event for tourism as the whole world remained confined to their homes. Although the crisis is far from over, vaccination drives have given people renewed hope. You too are probably wondering, just like I, will I be able to travel again soon? Travel emotions are shifting from fear to optimism, but definitely uncertainties remain. What will it be like to travel under this new normal of social distancing? Will vaccine passports be mandatory? Can vaccinations revitalize industries like hospitality, aviation, cruise liners, tour operators, among others? Join us as we explore these possibilities and more with Michael Cawley, former Chief Operating Officer of Ryanair. To look at the state of the COVID-19 since it's always been changing with hotspots and new variants. Overall, there are about 145 million cases or just under 2% of the world population. In the US, they crossed 30 million cases a few weeks ago. That's almost 10% of their population. If you're in the Czech Republic, it's about 15% of their population while almost one in five people in Montenegro have COVID-19 or had COVID-19. Really sadly, as a result, more than 3 million people have perished and countless others are still suffering from long-lasting effects on the virus. The World Travel and Tourism Council estimates that about 61 million tourism-related jobs were lost. This is a really important sector because it created 25% estimated of net new jobs globally in the five years prior, which is 2014 to 2019. Last year, GDP contribution by tourism fell by almost half to 4.7 US trillion dollars. Europe and Asia, these regions lost more than half of their tourism-related revenues last year and are still really suffering today. Take for example, Philippines is estimated that 10 million people rely quite heavily on tourism uh, in one way or another, the US is less affected because, you know, it's got a pretty broad travel industry to fall back on. Many European countries have a really heavy dependence on tourism. The top three here, as you can tell, are Spain, Italy, and Turkey, where normally tourism will count for about 10% of GDP, while last year, definitely less than half of that. Based in Europe, I think it's definitely great to hear from Michael on his insights for European travel especially for the rest of the year. Turning our attention to air travel, the obvious effect was that this has been cut really significantly. So the US is flying about 80% of what it was in December 2019. But this is largely domestic flights, as we will see later. Asia is about 60% versus December 2019. But I think my dip, probably because the current COVID-19 spike, is really Asia-centric. But that's the past. Let's look what summer holidays are going to be like. 
Busy months, definitely in summer with flights starting to pick up from May and June. For Europe, due to probably the European Union citizens' ease of crossing borders, international flights are going to really take up the lion's share of flights. Let's just hope that borders don't close again and scuttle those holiday plans. The folks in China, well, I think they're going to travel around that country still, which uh, is actually almost the same size as the United States of America, 9.6 million square kilometers. But obviously, they've got significantly more diverse weather patterns, really cold in the north and pretty nice tropical in the south. So we've just passed Earth Day last Thursday, 22nd of April. At Julius Bear, we are pretty serious about changing to operate sustainably. So it's quite interesting to me that I've heard some people who decided to say that, you know what, I'm going to stop flying to reduce their carbon profile. Of course, these folks are based in Europe where they can drive or take a train to a neighboring country. Carbon emitted per kilometer, also called carbon intensity, for short haul flights of about two hours is really very high. So if flying short haul is out of the question because, you know, we want to reduce our carbon footprint, are there alternatives for us to take our holidays? Well, I just did a really rough calculation and two hours of flying is about 1,500 kilometers or 23 to 24 hours of continuous driving. And looking at the emissions here or GHGs, greenhouse gases, driving petrol and diesel cars are still quite pollutive. It's packed with flying. So not great for those in Europe who think that driving is better for the environment. It's only when we get to hybrids, pure electric vehicles and public transport like trains where we really reduce our carbon footprint. So unless planes can reduce the emissions and especially their noise, some people may feel guilty about flying. It will be interesting to hear from Michael on the developments, especially on aircraft technology. But I think the real question is this. How do we implement the vaccine passport so that you and I can take our holidays or travel, even if it's on business or on leisure, without quarantine? Will passports just be like a piece of paper where forgery is really pretty simple, you know, and actually really dangerous? Or will we let go of our privacy via electronic apps where we've got to review data like location, lab results, digital identity, vaccine passport? How can we get global agreement on this? Data privacy, vaccine acceptance, how the government's going to execute this, you know? Maybe share your thoughts quickly. I think the key word you use there is global, which is going to make it extremely difficult. I think there will be, this summer, there will be a, an internal vaccine passport in Europe, undoubtedly. And I see this morning the, the EU have announced that they are in talks with the US government mm. to have a bilateral an acceptance of uh, vaccine passports between the US and Europe. I also think, obviously, some of the major bilateral links, if you like, between the, I can imagine the Middle East carriers will be putting pressure on their governments to make as many of these uh, agreements as possible. Also, China, presumably, for its international links, and Japan will similarly be doing, will be forcing their governments or pressurizing their governments to make these links. But for the moment, I only see them on a bilateral basis. Frankly, a global a universal vaccine passport is a long way off, in my view. Would you say that it's more even bilaterally is going to be a start-stop problem? i give you an example. Singapore and Hong Kong announced an air travel bubble. And it's pretty obvious that, you know, there are some moving averages involved in the total number of cases on either side. 
And every time that's breached, you know, there's going to be a like cooling off period. So, I mean, how are we going to navigate this, right? Where we are going to have a stop, start, stop situation where hotels and airlines are just going to have to suddenly stop flying because of a agreement between the two countries when there is a sudden spike. And we've had this um, bubble between Australia and New Zealand has now been postponed and cancelled, at least temporarily, for similar reasons. I think it's going to be very difficult. I can't speak with any confidence about Asia, Kelly, but uh, certainly within Europe, I think once the vaccine, we move so slowly here, frankly, but once the vaccine is up to 75% of the population, uh, which should be towards the end of August, I believe there will be a mutual acceptance of these passports within Europe. I also think the US government and Europe will reach the US government with its slightly libertarian, uh, more libertarian approach. You know, business has not been, business is, is as important to them as health, I would suggest almost, uh, certainly in their practices to date, in their policies to date. And I think they will take a very strong position on maintaining uh, the validity of the passport once it's introduced. It's difficult to know, but we have to take a view, and I think it will emerge over time, particularly as the costs of COVID become apparent, that COVID will be with us forever. It'll be like the flu to a certain extent. And I think we need to, to get rid of what I would call an over-cautious, an excess of caution in this regard. And in, particularly in Europe, we have, for example, ignored every other health issue and regarded COVID as primacy. And there's a backup of, of cancer, of flu, of many other diseases which have taken a complete backseat to the primacy of, of COVID. For the future, now that the vaccination has arrived, we have to get a far more realistic view that if we have 75% of the population and all the adult population vaccinated, the risk of mortality is almost zero. Not the risk of illness, but the risk of mortality. And I think we've got to look at a, this from a risk management point of view. That may sound crass and hard for some people to hear, perhaps, and I regret that, but I do think that it's got to be seen in the round and in the context of not just business, but other health issues as well. True. So flying is definitely going to be not going to be the same. But, you know, for myself, I've got three young kids. And the next burning question that I have for you is when will families be able to travel again? Because at this point of time, at least for the vaccines, you know, those that the Western world is sort of like rolling out Pfizer, Astra, as well as Moderna, no one under the age of 16 can take any of the vaccines. So how am I supposed to travel with my kids? Or how is anyone supposed to travel? Because this impacts the airlines, right? At the end of the day, you know, immediately your revenue basically gets cut in half. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, family business is very, very important, particularly during the summer uh, holiday vacation periods. It's very important for both the carriers, but also for the accommodation providers, uh, etc., and the leisure providers in the tourism destinations. I go back to my previous point, Kelly. The level of mortality among children is almost zero. We have to do a risk management, genuine risk management exercise on this and say that what we're hearing from those countries like Israel and the UK and the US, which are far ahead with um, vaccination, is that vaccination doesn't just provide immunity, but it also significantly reduces the risk of transmission. And if we have a group of people, i.e. children, who may have the virus, but cannot give it to those of us who are vaccinated as adults, and who in themselves may get somewhat ill to varying degrees, or indeed in some cases may not have no symptoms, 
well, then I think that's a risk which we're taking with other things. We're taking it when we drive a car. We're taking that risk with flu. We're taking it when we fly, indeed, although thankfully airlines have minimized that and aircraft manufacturers have minimized that risk. But it'll just be another risk we have in life. Now, that may not be addressed within the next six months, but I think over time, the fixation which we have developed with COVID will be mitigated by people's experience. How do you see sustainability coming into play uh, with regards to airplanes? Like, you know, whether, like, looking at this question here, right, given the concern of sustainability and climate change, how will air travel adapt? Will the air travel industry adjust like most form, you know, like electric, going electric, going hydrogen? Where do you see that? Is that going to be a 10-year progress or, you know, we are sort of like pretty close there already? I think it's probably a much more urgent question for aviation than COVID is, frankly, and a much more structurally long-term impact on the business. Uh, Ryanair's chief executive is the is one of the co-founders of the CNBC Climate Council. He's the only aviation member of that, which was formed earlier this year, with a commitment to a doubling our commitment to aviation's goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. Specifically, by the way, at the Slovenian example you gave, Kelly is not the only one. A hydrogen plane flew in the UK earlier this month, and uh, while it had made uh, is very very low power and very short distance for the moment. I'm sure that will develop. Electric cars developed in the same way. We have got to address this issue. We've got to address it for a couple of compelling reasons. Number one, the consumers overwhelmingly, and particularly the younger cohort of consumers, are extremely concerned about this issue. And we need to be, as corporate citizens, leading that. And Ryanair has taken a lead on it. And secondly, carbon taxes are penal. We pay up to a billion euros of carbon taxes across Europe uh, every year. And governments are committed, as is the EU centrally, are committed to increasing those taxes over time. So as a company which creates a market by reducing fares, that's a major issue for us. Uh, So we have most recently sponsored a chair in Trinity College in Dublin, specifically to help us with uh, researching in the area of engineering, uh, researching the reduction in carbon emissions, but also in noise. And that uh, professorship and his students will work in collaboration with Boeing and CFM, our engine suppliers, to effectively move us down the emissions range, but also over time to get to this 2050 goal that we have. I should have mentioned, by the way, that the new aircraft with Ryanair has just recently bought, the Boeing MAX, has over 20% noise reduction per seat and over 20% carbon emission reduction per seat. So both of those are good news, but they're only the start of our commitment. I would urge every other airline to make genuine efforts. All our ground transportation in Spain is now driven by electric vehicles. Mm. We have gone carbon neutral already there. We will do the same in Britain later this year and roll that out across Europe in collaboration with our airport partners. And that's the, the contribution at the ground level. And obviously the big task is at the uh, is in the aircraft themselves, but we're we're well advanced with our plans on that, and we're going to spend a considerable amount of money in developing those uh, those technologies. All right, it's interesting that you brought up the point of airports. You had your ground handling vehicles going fully electric, and maybe I'll take a step at this one, which has the highest number of votes. Airports dead assets, right? And how can they change? I think that oh, I'll take a stab at it. You know, at the end of the day, I think. 
some airports need to change. Maybe I live here in Singapore and I use it as an example, but I think it's a pretty good example of a dual tail system where they basically get quite a lot of revenue literally from retail. In the West, I understand that, especially in North America, you know, you going to an airport sometimes, you know, so like it sends shudders up your spine because, you know, you got to go through all the security screening and it's not exactly a destination of fun. But in Singapore, I think that we've managed to mitigate that quite well. We've got the jewel. And I think these are the aspects in which airports have to change, where a lot of uh, duty-free shopping and shopping and food and beverage is definitely going to be part of the offering for airports. I mean, in your experience, you know, with Ryanair flying in so many locations, which do you think are the airports that will survive or is going to improve over this? season post-COVID? I think you're absolutely right, Kelly. The um, airports are shopping malls to whom we bring shoppers, you know, and who are in spending mode because they're traveling. People are much more inclined to spend when they're on vacation and they start that vacation when they leave their home. So in transit through the airport, the airport should provide them with many opportunities to spend, whether it's on food and beverage or in retail stores. And Singapore is a marvelous example of that, as is Dubai, as is Frankfurt. Uh, London Gatwick, for example, yeah. and Frankfurt, Maine. And um, you're quite correct. The U.S. airports are very poor retail operations. And, you know, part of the, I would hope, infrastructure investment in the U.S., it should be dedicated towards improving the infrastructure at airports, but also in improving the spending possibilities and the retail possibilities that exist there, because they are essentially self-financing. In many well-run airports in Europe now, the non-aeronautical revenue exceeds the aeronautical revenue. So Reiner is quite aware of the fact that we bring valuable customers to airports who will spend, and in many cases, the economic relationship we have with the airport is that they are giving us free access to the airport because they will reap an almost an assured level of revenue from each customer on average that passes through that airport that we bring. And because we have the choice, obviously, to bring them to other airports if we choose. And you're quite correct. Those are the airports that will survive and those are the airports that will prosper in the future. Those that see themselves just exclusively as a travel and transit model, if you like, will not survive. I've got to just switch gears a little bit. And this one on Ireland, right? <laughs> this Ireland example is interesting. How do you balance future virtual tours of Ireland in paid offerings versus relying on the law of averages as likelihood to happen again. Actually, I think this is basically saying, I mean, in my interpretation of it, this, is technology going to play a big part in travel from now? You know, ultimately the big risk... reality, yeah. AR, well, what do you think? Oculus? The big, big risk for tourism is that uh, virtual reality becomes a, a substitute and an acceptable substitute. In my view... It's hard to imagine that that could be the case, but uh, maybe that's a function of my age and my lack of imagination. <laughs> but I would encourage you, during my time as chair of uh, the Irish Tourist Board, we doubled our international tourists over a six-year period. So the real authentic nature of countries, and you have it in Singapore, you have it everywhere. And by the way, the other thing you miss in a virtual experience is the interaction with local people, which I think is very important. And that varies from one country to the other, but I do think that the uniqueness of Italians or Vietnamese, and Vietnam has made a huge success of its tourist business, 
of meeting people in California, wherever you go or in South America, you cannot get that virtually. And I can't imagine a circumstance where artificial intelligence will compensate for that. However, I may be wrong. And at the margins, it may satisfy some people's tastes. But I still believe there's massive pent-up demand in tourism generally. People want to travel. There's an emerging middle class right across the, the world with disposable income who want to travel and have these new experiences. And most of those experiences, when you analyze them, are enhanced massively by interaction with the local people, which is something that the virtual world cannot recreate. That's true. I think that it's really hard to replicate, for example, a safari experience in South Africa. You know, I think it's just so difficult. Cosmopolitan cities, though, I think maybe that could be a little bit more at risk simply because maybe people are just afraid to go in more crowded places. Okay, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions and you just say yes, no, up or down, right? So these are the quick fire questions that I have for you. Asia, Europe, North America, which long haul comes back first? North America. Hotels, airlines, cruises, which one would you go for? Airlines always. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so I guess we've come to the end and I really, really thank you for your thoughts, Michael. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.